0: You're listening to Integration Redesigned, the podcast that unpacks ideas, trends, and topics that directly impact developers and tech professionals. Join us as we learn from experts who are innovating and developing emerging tech with the world's leading brands. And welcome back to Integration Redesigned. I'm your host, Kate Port. And in this episode, I am joined once again by Matt, head of strategy here at DigiB. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thanks, Kate.
0: The more that we've talked to market leaders, customers, prospects, the more that we're learning about the importance of the three P's, I'll call them of integration, uh, price, people, and productivity. And as a reminder and disclaimer, all data that we'll reference today comes from publicly available sources like a company website or analyst research, and the white paper that we'll reference and discuss today includes all references to any information discussed here. We're obviously, as I said, not going to talk about the three P's of marketing, product price, and promotion as much as I would love to, Uh, but the three P's of integration, if we can even maybe coin that term. Matt, you recently wrote a white paper on the topic and I'm very much looking forward to dissecting that today. There's a ton of really good data in that white paper and uh, while we won't have time to get to it today, definitely check out the link uh, below to download the white paper or give the link in the bio and summary of this episode a click. Let's start off with pricing. Historically, enterprise software vendors They've made their pricing deceptively challenging to understand, uh, starts off really simple, easy to digest, easy to understand, and then suddenly turns into a guessing game or a chess match. Uh, and ultimately, I have, as a buyer and our buyers, have felt really confused with the whole process. I'm sure that you're, you know, you'll get to this um but also hit with unexpected costs during that implementation phase. That's a big one. Uh, Oh, yeah, you can have this, but it'll cost you X. Matt, I'd love to hear your view on where your research led you around pricing and what guidance or advice you might give to software buyers.
1: Sure, Kate, thanks a lot uh, for the introduction and the opportunity to be here. And And I think it's it's an interesting question because actually on one level, traditional software licensing seems sort of simple, right? You pay a perpetual license, and then maybe you pay, probably you pay uh, annual maintenance um, on top of that. And that, that seems simple. It's X for the perpetual license and Y for the software maintenance. But the reality is, in order to get to that perpetual license cost, there's a lot of complexity, and I think I think that's worth really teasing out because the reality is that a lot of um, ipass vendors are still pricing based on that, what I would describe as a legacy pricing model. So <clears throat> the most fundamental part of that is always capacity. So what um, the way that um, that that perpetual licenses have long been priced, is based on the most utilization that a server will need to execute the job or the jobs that that software is doing. And when virtualization came into the market 15 years or so ago, um, that complicated things for software vendors. And so now what we see in that it's, it was harder for software vendors to uh to earn as much revenue based on that because it virtualized the environment. Um, There are a lot of vendors still uh, that are active in the IPASS market that are still pricing based on virtual cores. So what that means is the prospective buyer has to size their utilization and typically at the maximum amount that they will ever need. And so the classic example of that is you're a, a retailer, or let's say a very large e-commerce vendor that has a spike in sales on Black Friday or on special sales events, and that's when you're going to have the most utilization. And so you have to price to that amount, even if 99% of the time during the year you're only you're only executing at 10% of that or whatever the, whatever the figure is. So that's already complicated. But let's accept that at the end of the day, that's just still it's one number, VCore, right? okay well then on top of that um many of our competitors um require their customers to choose the type of edition that they get um do they want the the a b or c edition or the silver gold platinum or the you know the the chevy of a lexus edition or whatever however they choose to 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 split the sort of good better best right That's another choice that has to be made. And those additions come with certain um, uh, capabilities. um, And of course, they vary by by vendor. Then on top of that, there are decisions that have to be made about um, even additional capabilities. So uh, for multi-product companies, as opposed to a platform vendor like us, you might need to pay more to get that second, third, or fourth product that's not actually it's really not a platform it's a bunch of products and on and on and on and on and so this becomes and then sorry one one more thing and we'll talk about this a little bit more i think is um, i already mentioned maintenance which is another cost that has to be incurred then there are costs not associated with the software itself so the implementation fees right so how do you hire um, either uh, a consulting for, firm or, um, or services people from the software vendor to implement the solution, there's a lot of cost associated with that. So so there's cost on top of cost on top of cost on top of cost. And um, it, is, it is a challenge, and it's not, um, I would say, the most transparent or customer-forward way to approach licensing. So, you know, the big advice I would suggest for software buyers, whether they're um, the actual the, the the buyer who's actually going to be using the technology, or whether they're part of of a vendor management organization, typically in large companies that have those, is really to push for for simplicity. And of course, ultimately, the beauty um, that any SaaS vendor offers, including Digibee should be and is in our case, very simple pricing. This is the price. You pay it. This is how we get to it. And it covers all of those considerations.
0: It's a really nice summary. And there were a couple of nuggets in there. I want to pull on one around capacity or utilization. It's a tricky one to answer. I think that One of the things we want to recommend is understanding your capacity or potential future capacity before negotiating on a price. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. And actually, before I answer your direct question, I want to actually even answer another part of it, which is that, again, remember in traditional license models, the capacity is owned by the buyer. I'm buying the hardware that that software is going to run on. I'm buying the databases, the operating systems. And yet the software vendor is still charging based on capacity. Basically how many versions of this am I buying right now? Maybe that's reasonable. Wait, maybe that's unreasonable. Um, for a long time, I've said that, you know, the, the beauty of that, of that model is that the incremental price of the second piece of software to the provider is zero. Um, so it's, all margin for for vendors right so so I understand that model and I worked in that model for a long time in a SaaS model and we're looking at path capacity and you're absolutely right we want to understand that before we even get into to to pricing discussions because um it's a big deal right and we as a SaaS vendor are paying for the utilization of the hardware and the supporting software to run our iPass. we're paying a hyperscaler for that um, utilization. We're not running our own data center, and so we have costs that we have to pass on to our customers. And of course, we have a little bit of margin on top of those of those costs, as any as any company would. Um, but those costs for us are fixed. So the more capacity we we use on behalf of our customers, the more we have to pay. Um, and so it's important for us as a vendor that we understand that capacity. And, and clearly also then important for, for, for the consuming organization as well. And that's, I think also another really nice thing about the SaaS model is that it really does foster, um, uh, a, 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 a more collaborative approach to that reality, right? So in the, in the former approach, the costs are all on the, the consuming organization. But in the SaaS model, the costs really are shared. And so no organization wants to incur any more costs than they need to. And I think as such, most SaaS vendors do everything that they can to keep those, let's call them those operating costs of managing the hardware um, or or I should say the hyperscaling environment that we that we that we get. Um, because the more those costs we incur, as I said earlier, the more the costs we have to pass on and, and we don't necessarily want to do that. So I think that's that's fundamentally what's what's different about the models.
0: I think we could talk about pricing for probably an entire episode <laughs> um, but I, I think there's some really good information there particularly about the difference between traditional pricing models or, or legacy and these SaaS models where it's a little bit more shared and and most companies are transparent about that in, including ourselves let's talk about resourcing really important thing to think about when buying a new piece of software something that we go through all the time on the revenue side of the business who's going to use this how they're going to use it, who do we have to staff it legacy vendors have required historically specialized developers or resources not only to ensure that the buyers on board the tool successfully but so that they can continue to use these tools effectively what's the main difference between a legacy vendor versus digibee when it comes to the time and cost commitment around resourcing
1: right um yeah i think everything you said of course is right there and i would I would point out that, again, it's it was a core model of the legacy pricing approach, uh, or, or I should say the perpetual licensing approach. Most enterprise software vendors um, had a, a model where they would charge roughly 20% of the perpetual license for annual maintenance. And then depending on the part of the software market that, that those vendors were in, there was an assumption of how much of the, again, the perpetual license cost would also be charged in services for implementation, often by the vendor itself, sometimes by system integrators. And that, again, that percentage would would vary a little bit by the market, by the specific or sub-market, I should say. Um, And again, the beauty of the SaaS model is we remove uh, perpetual license and maintenance. Those are combined into a single subscription fee. But straight to your point about what's different about Digibee compared to many of our competitors and certainly the legacy pricing model is we take a very different approach to um how we target um uh our users or who we think our users should be and very simply we think our users should be every or any software developer who could contribute to writing integrations and that's distinctly different from requiring um, specialized integration developers who obtain and maintain certifications on uh, uh, the variety of, of legacy vendors that that we compete with. Those certifications um, have costs associated with them. They drive actually the costs of the developers themselves up because it creates some uniqueness in them. Right, they they have a specialty. Um, And so the average cost for a specialized integration developer is higher than it is for the average cost of a developer. And so at Digibee, our core operating principle is that every developer can use our technology to build, deploy, and and, uh, manage integrations. That's a fundamentally different approach. And in fact, Kate, we don't... Uh, as a standard practice we don't even offer certifications on digibee so if if kate you wanted to become a uh, a digibee certified developer you really wouldn't be able to do that because it's our it's our idea that that's a capability that you kate as a developer should be able to have without any special specialized training from us and, I don't want to overstate that. Of course, you have to learn how to use our platform, and we we offer training that's really great. That's also, by the way, part of the the cost that we that we um, share with our with our customers. But it's a relatively short cycle to um, to, to do that, and it doesn't require again those ongoing uh, commitments to to, um, to 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 certification just on us.
0: I've been looking at you know, CRMs and different uh, CMSs, one piece of advice that we've gotten from advisors is choose something that doesn't require you to have a specialized resource to utilize because it'll hold you back. And that advice extends to sales and marketing software, to integration software, like we're talking about. Anything you don't as a business user Know our owner or buyer want to be held back by that specialization. So I think it's a really good point to highlight that it okay. exists in this space as okay. well.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Not surprisingly, let's let's go to our final topic. But we're all trying to do more with less, uh, uh, we're, which is quite a challenge. We talk about the benefits of cloud native architecture here at DigiB in terms of productivity cloud native architecture has proven to be differentiating and impactful for our customers. In the white paper, you talk about end of life, upgrade paths, and how painful it can be to move for a team trying to move quickly because it's a required step. Why does it matter about the architecture of a platform versus the way that DigiB is?
1: Let me say one, a couple quick words about cloud native. So cloud native is a is a very loaded term that um there are literally competing definitions in the market for for cloud native so we are cloud native we're very confident in that based on based on the commonly accepted definition we're also born in the cloud and that's a distinction so what i mean by that is is our founders uh when when they founded the company they began developing the solution Based on hyperscaling technology, hyperscale technology, as opposed to based on a, a, a server that was sitting in their in their in their office or whatever, um, and then later deployed to to a, a cloud environment, and and that's kind of the reality of, of many of our legacy competitors. They were developed for in a client server world, and they've been refactored to run in the cloud, and that creates some technical limitations for some of their um, for some of their, uh, scenarios. Um, you talked about end of life also. And I think it's really important to talk about that, you know, end of life, probably a better term is end of support end of life. Um, and I say that because end of support is kind of the technical term and there are probably no, inter- no organizations in the world that are going to run software that's unsupported particularly integrations. Let me say that again, that that run integration software that's unsupported because it's so critical. Right. And so, um, your organization might, uns- might run unsupported software for something that's not mission critical. Um, although unlikely, but you're certainly not going to run it for integration. So end of life end of support let's, we can use those sort of interchangeably. Um, it be and for any SaaS vendor, there is no end of life. There is no end of support, right? Because the there there's no versioning per se. the The version that you're on is the current version, and the version that you'll be on tomorrow is the current version. And um, whether a vendor um, practices practices a continuous delivery model of, of software updates or whether they ship updates on a scheduled basis monthly quarterly whatever the fact is that all of their customers are always on the same version and always on the current version and so there's real value in that and there's real value in that we've talked about this before with the challenges of 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 um, of, of upgrading uh, on-premises integration technologies and, and how how really really painful that is so so um there are clear benefits in, in leveraging technologies that fully, um, take advantage of the benefits that we get from working with hyperscalers. Um, and there's the, there's simply the benefit of never having to upgrade your software, right? So there's, there are the really cool technical, um, um, benefits in terms of vertical scaling and horizontal scaling and immutability and, 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 um, but boy, just not having to upgrade. That in and of itself is super, super powerful.
0: I can barely remember to click the button on my Chrome browser to upgrade it. I've got that little red notification, you know, five days out of seven. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to upgrade legacy technology with a team that is already saddled with a heavy backlog. It's tough
1: work. It's tough work for sure.
0: Well, Matt, once again, thanks for joining for those listening, please take a look at the link in the episode or visit digib.com to download your copy of the white paper on price, people, and productivity comparing DigiB to a legacy vendor. That's it for this episode of Integration Redesign. You've been listening to Integration Redesign redesigned. To learn more about how DigiBee can help your team connect and integrate systems at scale, visit digibee.com. Thanks for listening.